So, the theme which we are going to introduce this evening and explore further through these following days is transcendental dependent rising. Actually, it's transcendent, but it's sort of transcendental. Transcendent dependent arising. But before I get there, you know, Buddha, the Buddha taught for 45 years, and everything he taught was simply in service of helping people move from struggle to freedom from struggle. He even says, there's just one flavor of what I teach, that flavor is dukkha and the end of dukkha. Everything. You know, it isn't really a journey that we're on from somewhere to somewhere. We're simply changing. We're changing, we're growing, we're transforming. We're not going anywhere, there's nothing to get. But we change through meditating, reflecting, exploring the inner landscape, coming to understand it. And so, in a way, all the various teachings the Buddha gave can be considered as maps. Maps. And we've all know about maps. You have maps of a territory, but you have all different kinds of features on different kinds of maps. You can have many maps of one territory. You can have maps elucidating roads and streets or waterways or population densities or languages, anything, all kinds of things we know. They're all true. They're all part of the territory. And so, in a way, you can think of all these different teachings as maps to the territory of the inner world of stuckness and emerging from that stuckness. And we offer them all to you as we all explore them together as um, like locks to your places of stuckness, like keys to your locks, offering you keys. And some, we offer you lots and lots of keys. And some of the keys will fit some of your locks some of the time. You don't have to pick up all the locks and try them in all of all the keys and try them in all of your locks, but they're just a gift. There's one of my favorite poems, favorite all-time poems, half his poem about that, so I'll just say it, because it's relevant in a way. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. So tonight I'm going to talk about beautiful and rowdy prisoners, really, which keep emerging, as you see, (laughs) because you're the sages dropping your keys for your own locks. So... There are all these maps that the Buddha offers. Some of the maps that you're familiar with for the territory of stuckness are maps like the hindrances, 
maps like the three kalesas, the defilements or coverings of greed and hatred and delusion, fetters and so on. And many of the maps are about freedom. They're the maps of the factors of awakening or the spiritual faculties or the noble truths and the eightfold path leading to freedom and so on. One of the maps of the stuckness is called dependent origination. It's complicated in that there are 12 little pieces to it. But we don't need to go into detail too much. But the meaning of this is that the main essence of this particular map about dependent origination is with his brilliant mind that got so fine, he could see so subtly that almost all of these 12 little aspects of being stuck are inevitable. One conditions the next, the next, the next, the next, the next, the next. They happen so quickly that we don't even, we can't tell oftentimes. As we become more proficient at meditation, in other words, as the mind gets calmer and is able to see more subtly, it can see these more easily. But the point of them is that we're stuck (laughs) in this because one step leads to the next and we're trapped in this unfolding thing almost completely. It describes our stuck experience in a moment, in an hour, in a conversation, in a relationship, in some kind of scenario, short or long, in a lifetime. Same principle. The principle of conditionality. One moment, one moment of experience, even the very subtle ones, running over into the next, causing the next one to happen, which then causes the next. Most of humans, most of the time, are stuck. We're stuck believing a certain perspective. It's a way of thinking that we're stuck in. It's actually a belief from a perspective, the perspective being the one of, I am me in the middle of the universe, and I'm interested in the things which give ease to this me and which don't. That's about all I care about. That's it. And so I spend my life trying to make this one have more ease. And we are at the mercy of that whole perspective because we believe that, that I am in the middle of the universe and the things that happen to me do make me happy and sad. And so I better get more of the pleasant and get less of the unpleasant. And that's my mission. And that's our life. Whatever the detail. And... In, plonked into this plane of existence where humans are, where there's plenty of both. Plenty of both. Ups and downs, challenges and beautiful things. Frogs <clears throat> in spring and dusk and indigestion and heart, heartburn and skin burn and all of it. thing about the stuckness that we feel so in, first of all, we don't know we're in it because that's all we know and so it's normal. Second of all, it's um, actually optional. (laughs) But because we don't know it's optional, it's not optional, we're stuck. 
when I was a, a midwife, I used to also educate people about childbirth. And one of the, my main messages was, you can do it how you like. You can have your mother there or not. You can sing and be loud or not. You can walk around or not. You can spend your time for hours in a bathtub or not. There are some places where you don't have as much option, but on the whole you have a lot of choices. And um, for a lot of people that was completely amazing because they didn't know they had those choices. And until they knew they had choices, they didn't have choices. They would have just done what they were told to do, not realizing that were there were any options. Well, until we hear that we have options, we don't. We're stuck. Thinking that happiness is getting what I want and getting rid of what I don't. And that's my lot in life. So one of the most amazing things that has happened to us all here, and to the few lucky ones in the world, is we get to discover that literally being imprisoned is a choice. We choose it. We choose it out of habit. We choose it out of complete conviction that it helps. And it does help. It helps bring comfort. It helps bring food and friends and shelter and convenience and all kinds. But it doesn't deeply, permanently, utterly help. We're stuck because we don't know we have another choice. We're stuck because of the way we perceive, the way we believe getting more of the pleasant and getting less of the unpleasant will help me. And we're stuck for the third time because the thoughts that come out of that belief, oh, I need this, oh, that's terrible, we completely believe them too. Three levels of being stuck. It's really stuck, entangled. So, as the Buddha in his wisdom, in his wisdom he often said, I'm like a doctor, you know, you're sick, I'm the doctor. The first thing we do when we're sick, when you're with the doctor, is you have to figure out what's wrong. You have to get to know what the problem is. You can't just hop out of the problem and be well. You have to actually deal with the problem. So the first thing to do is get to know how we're stuck. So that's why there are some maps about being stuck. The 12 links of the reg- dependent origination are, is one of those maps to help explain how it is when something happens and it triggers a certain recognition and a certain response and a certain whole cascade of behaviors. These are the 12, but don't try and listen, but don't try and remember. Don't let your left hemisphere get too busy here in this talk this evening. We don't know that we have a choice. We don't understand what's happening. When something happens, we respond in some way. We want this, we don't want that. Automatically. We have consciousness, we're aware of what's happening. We have a mind in a body. It's how we are, how we're made. This body has got senses, sense doors, sense organs. Things affect the sense organs. Sounds happen, we get touched. This sense called contact has flavors we perceive helping pleasant ones or unpleasant ones. When there's pleasant or unpleasant, we react. We want this, we don't want that. (coughs) Then we really often get really attached to that. We need this thing, we've got to get rid of that. It's really seriously a problem. 
And so then a whole uh, reality is born out of that. When something is born, it has its life, it will live until it fades away and then it dies and then it's gone. And in that whole process of things happening and then disappearing, there's, there's a rub, there's, there's friction. The key piece in that piece, because this isn't to talk about that whole link, it's the next one, but the key thing in here, we can't get this over and over enough, is when we get um, affected, when something impacts our senses, whichever sense, it has this flavor of pleasant or unpleasant. It appears to us as either it's pleasant and it's going to make me feel better. It's unpleasant, it's going to make me feel worse. Or it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's not going to affect me in any way, so I'm not going to bother with it. The response, this is Vedana, I talked already about it last week, we've talked about it again during the week, the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana. The reason this is key, this is so key in this whole thing, if we can be conscious that something's pleasant, we don't necessarily have to have it. We can enjoy it without gripping on and having to have more. If it's unpleasant, we can say, it's unpleasant. It was really unpleasant for me to actually not sleep very well last night and have this gurgling gut thing and this burnt face and this person stomping around too early in the morning. (laughs) It's unpleasant. It was just unpleasant. Or I could go into a whole little movie about it. This is where we can stop churning and round and round and getting into another whole little drama and living that out. And when it's a pleasant one, we enjoy it for a while and then it subsides, then it goes away and then we've lost it and we need another nice thing. It's just this endless round and round and it's called samsara. It's sort of over and over and over again, and we all know this very well, but we never seem to get anywhere. We understand things and we, we get older and wiser to a degree, but we, don't, we still seem to be like happy one minute and then you know, dumped on our bum the next minute. and It just feels like, am I actually improving my lot in my life? And, but we all know that there is some degree in there, we all get it. It's like, this can't be it. This can't be enough. There's got to be something more than this, going round and round, feeling happy sometimes and sad sometimes. We know that that there's got, we have this intuition, fortunately. So there's, there's all these other maps about that it's actually possible to move from that going round and round in these, these little unsatisfactory ways which temporarily satisfy us to some way more profound well-being. And so one of these maps is this, this 12-linked, another 12-linked conditioned experience which is like sort of the mirror image in a way, but it's, it's, it's transcendent. That, that map explains how easy it is to be caught, 
how so easy it is to be caught in that reality. It's the one we've always done and always known. And it takes a lot of fine-tuning and care, training the mind to be able to even notice that there is a little break that we can get out of. We don't have to choose that chasing after something that's pleasant or struggling against the unpleasant. It's optional. This one, this, this new map, is brilliant. I mean, they're all brilliant. This is so brilliant. This is a map of journeying, if you want to think of journeying somewhere, um, of becoming increasingly light, of becoming increasingly at ease, spacious, um, uplifted, um, peaceful, free, light, all the beautiful words that we know we all love are accessible experientially, one leading to another, leading to another, leading to another, all by themselves. We'll go into them at depth, so I'm not going to go into them in, in much detail tonight, but mentioning them. <coughs> this map isn't often taught. It's um, you know only in a couple of pseudos and early teachings, so it's not referred to very often. I don't know quite why. It should be all the time talked about and, and become familiar with us because they're familiar stages and steps that we many of us already, you know, experience to, to certain degrees. The, the principle is the same as the principle of the dependent arising, which is that it's conditionality. And so it's, it sort of gains its own momentum. We can invite in and get to know and recognize some of these. They're states of mind, really, states of experience. And we can abide in them and deepen into them and become more uh, filled with them, if you like. And they lead onwards themselves. Earlier in meditation training, especially when dealing with the stuck places, we we have to do things. We know there's a certain amount of doing, a certain amount of work. Unquestionably there's work. There's always some work, but in early stages it's a slog. As time goes by, we sort of get the hang of it. We get to be able to be more mindful, more naturally, for instance. It's not so hard work to come back and stay here. It starts to establish itself in us. And in general, as we progress along this path, it gets to be less and less work. It's me more and more sort of natural until the thing gains its own momentum and just carries us onwards. It's progressive. I'll read the links and then I'll describe them. Dukkha, or dissatisfaction. These are experiences, remember. It's not just nouns. These are things you, you know what they feel like to, to experience. Feeling of faith or trust. Joy. Rapture. Serenity and tranquility. Happiness. Concentration, calm, 
knowledge and vision of things as they truly are. Disenchantment, dispassion, emancipation, knowledge of the destruction of all fetters. And interestingly, it begins with dukkha. And when you think about it for just a moment, it makes such sense. So I'll talk a little more about dukkha. Dukkha. Bad or ill-fitting or unsuitable dukkha. Wheel. If you have a wheel that's not quite right, it's a bit of a bumpy ride. <laughs> it's rough. Edgy. That's what it means. Not flowing smoothly. Struggle. The Buddha said there are seven experiences we have which cause us to feel bumpy. Being born. I've often thought, you know, it's not that bad being born. I mean, when I was watching babies being born, they didn't all come out freaking out. They didn't. You know, they come out usually pretty mellow. (laughs) But it would be pretty weird to come out from sort of a very cozy, enclosed, quiet place to suddenly being blasted with light and sound and gravity, for instance. So, you know, there is a certain shock, if everything goes well, then I'm sure, and I have seen many times when they are crying, those poor little things. Be, having a life that will draw to an end and, and get increasingly difficult to handle. Losing of the faculties and weakening of the, the strength and memory loss and increasing dependence and all the things that come along. Bumpy. Becoming sick. Even indigestion, dukkha. Dying. It can be. Not bumpy. But so often it's bumpy. We're learning about that in our modern era. It's so beautiful to help with that. A lot of it's dukkha. And then he also said that contact with what we don't like. Well. Is not so good. And also, not being able to be in touch with what we do like. That's hard. And not being able to get what we want. Frustration. When we think something should be a certain way, but it doesn't work. That's also dukkha. These can be expanded on greatly, but we understand that. And there are some other ways that we can experience dukkha. I'm sure you're familiar with many, many. When we're reflective, when we become more um, conscious, there's lots of niggly things which are unpleasant that we don't know about. Ignorance is bliss, you know. And so um, to to have, you know, success, let's say, and to gain something that feels really good, but to realize that someone else is costing someone else something. It kind of spoils the pleasure to a degree. A lot of what happens in our modern Western world 
is at the expense of others. And even though it may seem great to have something, but what about the cost? And we're increasingly becoming more conscious about the various costs of the apparent benefits of things. They're not just purely beneficial. That kind of spoils them to a degree. Or say you have fine things. There's so often anxiety with it. You know, we, we worry that someone else will take it away. You know, that we're going to lose it. We get this whole, you know, security thing having to go, secure guard dogs. And I, for some reason, when I thought about this in preparing this talk, I don't know why, but I thought of the models who get to be lucky enough, honestly, if you could call it luck, to wear $30,000 diamonds to big gala events. You know, and they're just paranoid the entire evening that someone's going to come along and grab it or do something to them. This, you know, pleasure isn't just, ah, oh, now I can relax about it. So much anxiety goes along with having when you really think about it. And then there's the, the part that we all know about that very easily when you have pleasant, whatever it may be, success or fame or you know, partner or whatever, people in your life or not just possessions but experiences. We want them to last. We love it. And they will not last. And we know they won't last. And it's just like the attachment is bound sooner or later to be painful. It's just bound. And we all know that. We don't like to think about it. We just want to enjoy the pleasurable but there is, a, you know, there's a wanting to hang on that's so easily triggered. When you are, when you have something that you really like and you're attached to it and you want to keep it, it's also not just 100% nice, you know. You may love this person who's snoring, you know, <laughs> disturbing your sleep. You know, it's like you get the whole deal. If you really want something and you hang on to it, then you have to hang on to all parts of it. It isn't just 100% straightforward, you know. When I was a young hippie, <laughs> when I was young, I was a hippie, let's rephrase it. <laughs> I had a job briefly, an illegal job in the States, in Palm Springs, and it was um, being a housemaid to a millionaire family, just a couple actually, their summer, their winter home just outside the glass sliding doors, which one of my jobs was to polish. There was the swimming pool, and just beyond the swimming pool was the golf course and the golf cart, and a telephone that would work in the golf This was a big deal in 1972, I tell you. Anyway, they were nice people. She had a huge bathtub, which I had to climb inside and polish every day. I did a lot of polishing. <laughs> anyway, she had lots of white shoes. I remember that. But um, one of my jobs was to serve dinner, to lay the table. They liked my English thing, and so, you know, I had to serve their dinner. And I had to stand, rather like the footman in Downton Abbey, and, you know, <laughs> clear the plates and stuff like that, right? And one of my jobs. And, uh, and during one conversation, there was a dinner party, there were a few people there. It was, I remember it really well. She was a very nice little woman. She uh, was complaining, but she had a double complaint. One which she had some kind of female problem, some physical female thing. 
It wasn't deadly, it wasn't that big of a deal, but, you know, it was uncomfortable. But she was really complaining that she, who could afford 52 pairs of white shoes and, you know, swimming pools, had to put up with it. <laughs> like, why? Like, that wasn't fair. She was trying to buy herself out of trouble, and she couldn't. And she was really frustrated that it didn't work. You know, like, she's still, like, why me? It's like, I shouldn't have to put up with this stuff. Remember it really well. And uh, a couple of people come to my mind whom I've met during the course of teaching. Um, Two in particular, for some reason, who achieved great success in a material way. Great, great success. You know, they actually had it made, as it were. Great wealth. Both of them were kind of like, now what? You know, it's like so... I can do anything, I can go anywhere, I can have anything, I can eat anything, I can move around the planet, I can... So what? (laughs) Still, and they were shocked, still there's this feeling inside, I thought I was going to have taken care of it all, and I haven't. Like I, and, and one of them, it's like really, really, well both, really quite bummed out, it's like, you know, I've played my life away, and now I'm getting old, and they didn't have any other reference than the material reference. And in spite of the fact that they had done it all and it had all really worked, it still didn't seem to touch the real trap, you know? Because it can't. We all, even those who've apparently made it, are stuck with this Endless chasing, endless dissatisfaction, endless trying to fix, endless trying to rearrange circumstances to suit us. This blindness that we, we're born with, that we've all known. And it's only when there's sufficient struggle that we will stop that. And in those cases, for those last two people, it was after <laughs> long years of accumulation that they were able to say, because they had managed somehow to stave off all other kinds of of dukkha and their life had just been, had worked so far. They were like, this isn't enough. Even that isn't enough. And for most people, we don't have that level of success. And we have plenty of the things which cause us distress in our lives. Plenty. You've shared lots of them with us. We know, right here in this room, the struggles of being human the tragedies and the, some of the horrors of it for some of us. The thing about this is, when there's enough struggle, we of course go like, how can, how can I handle this? There has to be some other way than buying or fixing or avoiding or blaming. or There has to be some other way. I, There must be more tools. Where are there more tools to help me with this, being human? The spur to be reflective, the spur to ask the deep questions is dukkha itself. It's what moves us to some other seeking. If it worked, if there wasn't that much dukkha, if we could have the things we wanted and it was as simple as that, we would be in the heavenly realms. And there would be no motivation to look for other tools, to look for another way. 
but the pleasures, even the pleasures we have can be hollow or unreliable or bring along their various shadowy sides. And then aside from the pleasures, there's all of those other things, all those pains and struggles, and grief and remorse and all of it. And it's through all of that, as we know, like why are we here? We're not here because we're all supremely happy and life is just fantastic. Peace, you know, bowl of cherries. We wouldn't be coming here for a month or two at a time. We would be wallowing around in our cherries. <laughs> something about cherries doesn't quite cut the mustard, so we look for something else, and it's, it's the dissatisfaction of it, or downright pain of it. Mine was a broken heart, you know, 32 years old and abandoned with a two-year-old. Single motherhood was not my plan. So I went away on a 10-day retreat. <laughs> I knew somehow instinctively, I'd actually done four years of quite intensive meditation in a devotional path in my 20s. And I knew some of the calming, at least that came from meditation, the grounding. So enough. Then I had a friend who was taking a retreat, so I said, I'm coming, the timing's right. So I'd start my first retreat, that was in 1981. I'm sure many of you are here for some such reason. So, Dukkha sets us on this journey. And the next thing that happens, and I don't know how many times I've heard this in my time of teaching, which has now been about 11 years, is when I, sorry, when I heard something or other, when somebody said something, the Dharma, it just like landed right here, and I knew this was for me. Or some people say, I just felt like this was my home. My experience of it was um, a few years of going on retreats, but taught by an Asian teacher. And I, I wasn't really intrigued by the way, by the words. So I didn't listen, you know. Having heard them for a little while, I didn't pay a lot of attention to the teachings. I liked the practicing, the calming and the focusing and the concentrating. And then I found myself at a retreat in Santa Rosa in about 88 88, 89, I'm not sure, with some Western teachers, four Western teachers, actually. And when I heard them explain what this was all about, I felt, and I've, I still feel this feeling, it's funny, when what I said to my friends is like, I felt like I was in my own kitchen. <laughs> and these were my friends just talking to me. And it felt like so completely, utterly familiar. Like, this is where I want to be, in my own kitchen that feeling of resonance and that feeling of like, you just know this is good. So this feeling is, this, is the next on these 12. It's, no, it's called faith or um, trust in the rightness of it, that when it resonates, you know, it's like, yes, this is good stuff. There's somebody I know who's, um, she's a nun 
and um, she just taught a retreat with me at, at my where I live, just before I came here on this retreat. And, uh, and she has had all kinds of spiritual experiences in all kinds of different traditions and religions even, and so on. And uh, someday, and she's been really questing spiritual life all since she was a little girl, and somebody handed her the Majjhima Nikaya. She didn't know Buddhism yet. And they handed her the Majjhima Nikaya, and she, I don't think she's put it down ever since. She just, she said, I just eat this stuff up. She said, it was, I couldn't read any word in there that didn't f- sound absolutely right on. One of the required pieces for our journey is to hear somehow, it's usually from another person, some words that ring true, that shift us from the shopping one, you know, that, that other way of accumulation and fight and flight, that inspires something in us, that triggers this sense of of trust, this is the way I want to go. I don't want to go that way. I need this way. So the beginning. So first it's struggle leading to wondering whether I was going to tell another story, but maybe I'll pass on. So then the next step is joy. And these aren't that different and they're not like hugely, you know, they're now in a whole new land. But they are, they are all slightly different. There's a sense, faith is like, it's got even more hope. It's definitely forward leading. It's like, oh, this sounds great. But then as we actually get to experience some of the experiences we have as we meditate, the calming that begins to happen or the, the rec- some little, you know, the insights that we have. When you have an insight, there's delight. There's just a sense of like, there's delight. When somebody describes to us, and when we have our own, you know, the face smiles. There's some brightness in it. This is joy. And there's increasingly states like this in this journeying, as we know. We all know. I mean, we wouldn't sit here for a month if you hadn't had many such experiences. You wouldn't even consider it. These things, are that they nourish us, these various beautiful, wholesome states. These next few are, you will have heard many times, if you haven't heard this particular map, there's another map which is probably, I don't know, one of my favorite maps of all time, is the seven factors of awakening. And many times, not just that map, but other maps, there is a a sort of three-step description of uh, the awakening journey, and uh, it's joy leading get these three right that I'm talking about leading to calm and calm allowing the mind to settle and become concentrated three steps and I will just do a little aside here and uh, even though I've said it many times in my experience practicing I um, I don't know why I just was I was <laughs> I was too keen or something I was too pushy about it my personality. I was going to do this and I was going to get this and I, this really mattered to me. I had enough dukkha and enough type A personality energy that I really was a hard-working yogi, you know, and I was just going to get this thing. And so I had put had a lot of energy, you know, a lot of intention. Um, and I believed, though, somehow that, that I, by working, 
would do it. And that was my only understanding. And I worked. And I sat long hours and everything, you know, as you're all doing. And my mind did become concentrated. It did, no question. It actually was, became really well-behaved, quite well-trained. And, uh, and then something happened quite spontaneously. After quite many years of practicing, the mind becoming well-behaved, being able to see lots and, and release lots. Spontaneously one day, I was doing walking meditation. And uh, I even may have mentioned this to somebody. Um, just doing walking meditation on a retreat, well into the retreat, getting quite quiet. And what came up was this f- friendly voice inside me. The usual chattery voice that we have that's always commenting, 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 describing, describing, urging you on, you know, kicking you in the pants, whatever your voice does. Mine did a lot of that. It was that sort of tone of it. This one was like, you know, Heather, you're doing great. (laughs) It's like, you know, you're pretty nice. I mean, you know, you could be doing any number of things with what you're doing right now, but look what you're doing. You're walking backwards and forwards on a little path. And you're just quietly looking inside your life, like you could be doing a million other things. You've actually got some decent friends. You have a pretty good livelihood, really helping people. Your kids think you're a great mum. Considering what happened in your childhood, you could be really a lot of trouble right now. You could have had enemies all over the place, a whole trail of... But that's not the case. You're doing okay. And it went on like that, in that kind of speak, just normal chit-chat, but nice for 45 minutes the whole time. (laughs) It was like my sort of, you know, my best friend had shown up and was kind of patting me on the back and get over yourself, she was saying, and it's okay. It wasn't anything awesome. It wasn't, you know, choirs of angels singing great, you know, bowing down things. It was just, it's okay. You're just okay. And then I went and sat, because I was walking and sitting, and when I sat, my mind was so calm. It it just became immediately concentrated, just like Because there was no trouble to get through. There was nothing to get over or to deal with. There was no work required. It just was reassured. And so it just could relax. I've had multiple experiences like that. That was my first experience of metta. I didn't like formal metta. In fact, I disliked formal metta. It triggered me. I was critical and so on. And so I ignored it for, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, I don't know, all through the 90s I was ignoring the formal metta thing. And this was, maybe it was in 2000 this happened. And uh, everything was changing. And a couple of other things I've experienced, which I've also shared before in previous talks, but they were so m- monumental for me was exactly the same experience. And they were, this is all at Gaia House. I like to practice at Gaia House. I like the countryside there. Similarly, the way I was sitting outside here in the, in the, in the dusk and the you know, rolling hills. I love all that. I've always lived in you know, country places. And so uh, I like wandering around those fields and things. So one day I was wandering around those fields at Gaia House. And it was the afternoon. And I usually practice there late in the year. So October, November, December. So it was late in the year. And, uh, and it was in the afternoon. I was coming back from a you know walk for an hour out there, across the fields. And uh, the sun was beginning to set, because it's you know getting towards the winter solstice. So it was low in the sky ahead of me. And uh, a full moon was just beginning to rise up over my shoulder. And uh, there was a rolling hills there. And as I came up over the brow of the hill and into this field, 
which I had been in this field an hour before, and it had about, you know, 50 cows in it, relatively recently. As I came over the brow of the hill, the sunlight just happened to catch on the grass in such a way that the entire field was completely golden. And so I was totally like mesmerized, and I stood still and I looked. And when your eyes get quiet, when your mind gets quiet, your eyes get quiet, you can see so much more subtly. And I realized that it was, the shining was cobwebs. And it wasn't just cobwebs, it was only the strands in the cobweb that are horizontal to the sun, because it wasn't reflected on any of the others. And the entire field was completely laced, completely laced with golden cobwebs. But there were cows in the field, wandering all over the field. So how many spiders did it take to make millions of strands of gossamer that were shining in that particular moment? And it was so extraordinarily, unbelievably beautiful. And then I went walking on through and had my cup of tea and went and sat. And again, effortless peace. A third one, also at Gaia House, more recently, walking in the, in the lanes at Gaia House. So beautiful. It was a windy day, and it, this particular little lane goes up. There's a slope of a hill. So I went up the hill and around a corner, a long straight stretch of a couple of hundred yards of road, and a hedge, and a hill going down like this with the wind coming up. And again, I had turned into the sun, and the sun was straight ahead of me for 400, you know, I don't know, 200 yards, quite a long stretch of road. And uh, the wind was blowing like this. And the sun caught, again, it was more sun and cobweb story, but these cobwebs were just strands of gossamer. They were blown out of the hedgerows by the wind. So they were like, here comes the field, here comes the wind, and there's the gossamer. So from about this height where the hedge was, up probably two feet, all along where I was walking was this archway of, oh, I don't know, a thousand strands per foot, maybe, of cobwebs, gossamers. Same thing. It's like, God, there's a lot of spiders in England. That's why they've got so many birds, you know. (laughs) The, The spiders are food for the birds. But the beauty is just gobsmacking. It's often to do with light, I find, in my experience anyway. Shimmering of things. You'll hear, you know, when you hear spiritual words, it's often about light. But the effect is soothing. The effect is trusting. The effect is calming. And then the mind can be concentrated so easily. It just does. It's natural. Everything's okay. It's reassured. A little more detail in this particular map. Joy leads to rapture. Basically, it just it, it, it can expand itself. And rapture is often we a lot of us know this. It's like bubbles. It isn't just happy with cobwebs. It's like there's thrilling with that. We can have quite powerful, blissful experiences in meditation. It can be quite bubbly. I think of it as um, sort of champagne bubbles and. You know, enervating. Some people actually feel really light. Some people actually, there's levitations possible for certain people if you practice certain ways. I've never learned those things. (laughs) 
And there's different degrees and strengths and so on of rapture. I'm sure someone will happily talk about it more later in the week. Leading to calm, serenity, peacefulness. Even just the word serenity. When everything settles down, the mind is quiet, struggle isn't there, nothing to do. Peacefulness, beautiful. Relaxation. And then there's this an associated feeling, it's called sukha. Sweet feeling. It's not the same as the thrill and the joy, which is very energetic. It's much, much quieter, it's much more sort of diffused, but it's suffused everywhere. It's kind of, um, it's very wide in my experience, very, very soft, but rich. I think of it as syrup. I, the word sukha, you know, is kind of, we use that word in our cooking. Syrup, whereas I think bubbly effervescence is the kind of bubbly high-end pita, and the piti and then sukha is this much calmer, much quieter, very, very, uh, much more subtle state, beautiful, deeply satisfied, very satiated feeling, sort of delicious. And then concentration. The mind, when there's nothing then disturbing, nothing to deal with, nothing to rattle one, no bumpy wheels, no dukkaing, the mind settles and all settles together. And concentration, beautiful topic, hold, can talk for a long time about this. The thing about it is that it's not doing many things at once and it's not running anywhere. It all comes together. There's a togetherness about a concentrated mind. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean narrow, doesn't mean even fixed. It's soft. But it's everything's now sort of uh, whole. There's a wholeness to that. A wholehearted. Unified is a word I like, or collected. The attention and the different aspects of ourselves and the prepared bits and the sad bits and all of those little bits and pieces all sort of get merged together and become very simple, very whole. And then concentrated mind, when conditions are right, all by itself, can suddenly see deeply, truly, clearly what is true. And it can see how the little sense of self and its busy little mind trying to make itself happy isn't the deepest truth. It's just a, it's just a way of seeing. It's just a habitual, narrow, tight, anxious usually way. And there's a whole other way. And that experience of being little, being confined, usually somewhat desperate, isn't the only way of seeing. Another way of seeing, way vaster, is seen, is experience and experience. A glimpse of unity consciousness, there's all kinds of words. The unconditioned, And the system, when it sees beyond that usual way of seeing, realizes that's just a perspective and it's not the perspective. It's not the only and it's not the superior. It's a limited perspective. Out of which all of that behavior of struggle and improvement and strategizing and all comes forth. And then it's really known that it's optional. And it's, it's sweet, 
And it's sad and it's poignant to see I've spent all my life building this thing up that actually isn't the only way. It's not even really real. It's just, it's just a viewpoint. It's not even the real truth of things. And I've spent my entire life building it, protecting it. And it's what we all do. It's sweet because it's, it's forgivable. It's understandable. And it's sad because it's like such a waste of energy. It's like, oh my God. It's poignant. Both sweet and sad. And once this is experienced, it can never be forgotten. It can never be unknown ever again. And it deepens and becomes increasingly accessible and increasingly real. And the other state, the limited little separate sense of self, becomes temporary and not taken so seriously. Seen through as a trip rather than reality, not identified with the same way. That pull, though, of the original habit, our, our typical habit, is so strong, because it's so deep, we've done it so, so much, that it, it regains power, but it never quite regains the power it had before, and little by little it begins to wear thin and drop away. It's a process, we're in a process. But that's where the big change happens, that, this step here. Step number eight. And then from this, then the, the ongoing stages are, the next one is a, a sense of, um, we just, we, it, it's like, we don't get sucked in the same way to things. They just don't allure us. Their allure isn't there because we know that they don't actually really work. We've seen something superior. And so to have to get more or to be right, for instance, <laughs> doesn't quite do it. So we, we don't feel us, we don't have to resist. The, the attention and the uh, engagement with the old strategizing just isn't there. The energy is withdrawing from the, the ways we used to be, things we thought we needed, things we thought would bring joy, just lose their magnetism over us. We don't do anything. Withdrawal, I like that word. Nibida. Loss of interest. Loss of significance of what once was seen as utterly significant. Your drama. You're rerunning your drama. It's just like, uh, it's just a drama, rerunning. Sort of seen through, its power is, is seen through. And then comes a, a sense of dispassion. Dispassion is actually, that's more sort of active. It's the way we perceive. We, we withdraw interest. Interest is, is no longer pulled. Um, dispassion, viraga, is really a description of being in a state that's uh, uh, undisturbable. It's safe. You know, one of the many popular Meta phrases, may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. May I be safe. This is a state of being safe. You can't be disturbed anyway. Like you're now protected by this new perception. And one of the most beautiful images of this I love is that um, in the legends of the awakening of the Buddha, the Buddha is sitting in his long night, determined to 
be able to see really truly what makes happiness and what doesn't and no longer be caught in suffering. And, and he understands. And as he sits there understanding, withdrawn from the temptations, you know the story that Mara is there with his legion, you know, his whole army, the armies of Mara, trying to seduce the Buddha, trying to convince him that you know, he isn't worth this, or trying to say, if you only got up and had a cup of coffee, you'd be able to make it through the night, or you know, why don't you go and, go and sleep with my daughter here, she's gorgeous, isn't she? Or just all of the hindrances are there, and pains in the leg, and whatever it is, all the stuff we all experience are all happening around him. But he's protected from them, he doesn't buy into it. He, he, his interest has been withdrawn. You know, there's that disenchantment. And now he's safe. And Mara's arrows just can't penetrate him and convince him of, yes, I need something else. I need to move from this. I can't do this. It just doesn't happen. He's in this sort of protective bubble of a different state. And so what happens, and why I think it's so beautiful, is that the arrows can't get to him psychically. And so they turn into flowers and just melt all around him doesn't work. That kind of thinking doesn't hold, doesn't work. He's protected. And so then, of course, the next step is that he's free then. He's free of the neurosis of the little mind trying to fix things for him. Doesn't. He's free from that. He's not influenced anymore. Free. And you'd think that would be the end of the thing. That's only number 11. (laughs) So 12 is one more step, which is very interesting. This one more step is, isn't just that, that that's his experience or that's anyone's experience as this transformation happens to any one of us. It's that for full, full liberation, for the final step, there needs to be knowing of that. It's rather like mindfulness. It's like, you know, you can be, you can be excited, but you need to know you're excited so that you're not lost in it, so that it doesn't take over you. There's, there's still this bigger awareness that knows and in his experience, there's, there's, he describes, and I'm only quoting him now, I can't speak from experience at this level. <laughs> that would be interesting. Um, <clears throat> complete freedom is um, knowing he is completely free. Knowing that none of the tricks a mind can throw will ever again be able to catch him, ever unawares. And so this, like, that lion's roar, you know, when there's a statement, the house has been broken, the journey has been done, the, it's over, it's over. There's that supreme confidence of knowing this. Not just the experience, but the, the confidence of knowing it. So those are the twelve. So... Don't let this make you feel like it's unattainable over the rainbow someday. These are all experiences that are, they don't just progress and until you have one then you're never going to have the other and maybe when you're 95 if you're lucky you'll have three. It's not that kind of thing. It's like they're experiences we all know and they build on each other and they grow and they increasingly gain momentum and each one of them gains momentum and each one of them helps all the others. It's like a mutually supporting dance going on. And they become more and more elevated and more and more profound and more and more established like that. And so we can recognize them in ourselves even when there's a glimpse of it or a taste of something. We can all recognize a lot of these things. So that's the meaning of this, is recognize 
your own moments of ecstasy or joy or cobwebs on the fields, you know, or uh, we do, especially in retreat, there's many moments that are so beautiful. And also recognize your moments of dukkha-ing. I prefer verbs because we really do the struggling part ourselves by how we think and then how we believe and how we act. Recognize when dukkha-ing is going on in you, that choice you're making to believe that you need something else or you need to fix something, you need to get rid of something. When we can recognize that, it isn't running us. We're in that moment not caught. Any dukkha-ing at all. And recognize those moments of nibbana-ing, those moments of any of these experiences which are the expression of freedom in that moment. Like I had last night, dukkha-ing in the night and nirvana-ing outside here in the evening. All available to all of us all the time. They will all serve our moving, transforming, changing from being caught to being free. And this is the whole point. Let's just listen to the frogs calling to each other for a minute or two. Thank you for such attention. I hope this is helpful a little bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.